0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 6, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. A fiscally sound federal government should start with an end to all grants to state and local governments. So says former U.S. Senator James L. Buckley in his new book, Saving Congress from Itself, where he proposes just that. Buckley made his case at a Capitol Hill briefing last month. My epiphany began a dozen years ago when, on my retirement and return to Connecticut, I subscribed to a nearby city's daily papers. I soon found it filled with reports of federal grants in support of an astonishing variety of purely local purposes. These included, for example, a $1.5 million grant of highway trust funds for the rehabilitation of a vandalized railroad station that had long since been converted to private non-transportation uses nearly $2 million to replace a one-lane bridge connecting two small communities a dozen miles from my home, financing for an art center honoring Katherine Hepburn, and a half million dollars a grant to widen two streets leading to a school. That last is my favorite example of congressional imagination. Those sidewalks are being widened courtesy of an act of Congress titled the Federal Safe Routes to School Program. Its explicit purpose is to fight juvenile obesity by encouraging children to bike or walk to school. I'm not aware that the parents of the children attending that school feel that that is the most cost-effective way to slim their children, but no matter, you don't turn down Santa Claus even if the money he distributes comes from the federal taxes you pay or from the debt that those children will have to repay. Congress finds its authority to create such programs in a 1937 Supreme Court construction of the Constitution's spending clause, which empowers it to spend money, quotes, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States mischief lies in the words, general welfare. The Supreme Court recently summarized that holding as enabling Congress, in pursuit of its understanding of the general welfare, to use federal funds to, quote, induce the states to adopt policies that the federal government itself could not impose. Thus, Congress is now licensed to concern itself with areas in which it is forbidden to act by offering to subsidize a whole spectrum of state activities on the condition that the states accept Congress's directions on how they are to discharge their own responsibilities. Because those programs deal with matters beyond Congress's constitutional authority, the Court has made it plain that participation in them may not be coerced. As I know from my own experience as a senator, Those in elective office are always in search of ways to maintain closer contact with their constituents and of new ways uh, to please them. The Supreme Court's 1937 decision opened up a vast new horizon for doing precisely that. It was not until the Lyndon Johnson administration began invading areas that had formerly been considered off limits to the federal government, however, that uh, uh, members of Congress came to realize the political opportunities that this new court precedent had opened up for them. Thus, while at the outset of that administration, there were just 132 such programs, today there are more than 1,100 of them. In 1970, when I was elected to the Senate, those programs distributed $24 billion dollars This coming year, they will distribute almost 641 billion, which will amount to one-sixth of total federal spending, and all for purposes that are the exclusive business of the states. A surprising aspect of this development is how few people, including those here on Capitol Hill, are aware that those figures (coughs) do not begin to reflect the full cost of those programs or of the vast changes they have brought about in the way we now govern ourselves. Because those grants come with the most detailed instructions, their total out-of-pocket cost to the federal FISC includes not just the amounts distributed, but the expenses incurred in drafting regulations, screening grants applications, and ensuring, ensuring that recipients comply with the federal rulebook. The cost of that additional work has been estimated at $1 for every 10 distributed, for a total of about $64 billion in the coming year. The major cost of the federal government, however, may well be the diversion of congressional attention from the critical issues that only Congress can address. Studies confirm that its members spend heroic amounts of time on their work, Those studies also confirm that they spend a major portion of their time attending to constituent concerns that, unfortunately, tend to focus on matters that are the responsibilities of governors and city councils rather than those of a congressman. Matters such as public housing, job training, education, homelessness, and unfilled potholes. That last uh, comes to mind because a recent senator's attention to urban munitia actually earned him the nickname of Senator Pothole. (laughs) But those are precisely the kinds of matters to which those 1,100 grants and aid programs are addressed. The costs at the state level are so diverse that it is impossible in this presentation to describe them all or to give an adequate idea of their cumulative impact. But here are some of the kinds to which I refer. To ensure compliance with the detailed regulations governing their use, federal grants uh, add layers of state and local administrative expenses to the costs of the subsidized projects. They also impose one-size-fits-all requirements on states as different as Arizona, Alaska, and New York, thus preventing their officials from applying common sense and local knowledge in securing the best, best value for the money expended. Furthermore, they can trigger a host of unfunded mandates, I believe there are more more than a thousand of them today, mandates such as the Bacon-Davis Act's requirement that the equivalent of union wages be paid for construction work involving the expenditure of any federal dollars, which can add as much as 20% to the cost of work. They distort state priorities by offering lucrative grants for purposes of often trivial importance, they encourage the waste that comes with spending someone else's money, what economists refer to as cost externalization, and they undermine accountability because state officials bound by federal regulations cannot be held responsible for the costs and failures of the projects they manage. And because those regulations are made by distant bureaucrats, Frustrated citizens who are directly affected by those programs have lost their ability to decide how their tax dollars are to be used. To compound the injury, I have found no evidence that the intervention of the federal government in the delivery of state and local services has improved their quality, but there is ample evidence of its failure to do do so. uh, To cite just one example, the Feds first became involved in education in a significant way almost 50 years ago with the enactment of the Elementary and Secondary Act of 1965. Yet as Andrew Colson has demonstrated in his exhaustive 2014 study, State Education Trends, During the succeeding decades, there has been no improvement in the quality of education nationally, despite a tripling of inflation-adjusted dollars spent per child. On the other hand, about the only encouraging developments in the field of education, such as vouchers and charter schools, are the results of state and community initiatives. This litany of costs notwithstanding, Advocates of federal grants argue that they are warranted for two reasons. The first is that the federal government is able to attract the greater uh, greater expertise from the states. Uh, That is no doubt true, but it begs the question as to whether academic prowess uh, trumps the hands-on experience and personal accountability on which the states once relied. Compare the Centers for Disease Control's bungling of the Ebola crisis with New Jersey's simple policy of quarantining those exposed to the disease. The advocate's second argument is that federal grants redistribute money from the wealthier states to the poorer ones, thus enabling the latter to maintain appropriate standards in such key areas as education. That is a seductive argument because The per capita income of the 10 poorest states is only about 68% of that of the 10 richest. Variations in state costs of living, however, can muddy the analytical waters. To cite one extreme example, Mississippi's per capita income is 75% of Hawaii's, but its cost of living is only 55% of the latter's. I doubt, though, that anyone would suggest that Mississippians who inhabit our poorest state should send care packages to Hawaii, which is our 17th wealthiest. Redistribution is thus a weaker argument than it appears, but if redistribution is indeed a proper function of the federal government, and I don't know if it is, there is a far better way to achieve that goal without imposing webs of federal regulations on all the states, rich and poor alike. The federal government could simply provide the have-not states with block grants having the sole requirement that the recipients use the money for welfare or education or some other specific purpose. Under that approach, Washington would not be telling the states how to meet their own responsibilities. Advocates of the programs also assert that because states' participation in them uh, participate in them voluntarily, they cannot complain about the costs and conditions that flow from the grants. Experience, however, has demonstrated that congressional bribes are almost uh, 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 are very hard to resist. Money from Washington is still regarded as free and state officials are delighted to accept grants, strings and all, rather than having to justify the full cost of the projects they freely undertake with federal subsidies. What makes declining grants particularly difficult is the fact that if a state does not participate in a program, its share of the money, money that is derived in whole or in part from its own taxpayers, will go elsewhere. Richard Epstein and Mario Loyola have written an elegant article that concludes that federal grants are, in fact, inherently coercive. I recognize, of course, that 23 states have, in fact, refused to participate in Obamacare's expansion of Medicaid coverage, but that is the exception that proves the rule. Having experienced the very substantial collateral costs of their existing Medicaid coverages, those uh, states uh, quite reasonably declined to compound them. There is only one way to resolve the problems that have resulted from Congress's preoccupation with these programs, and that is to terminate all of them. They must all go. Because if none is, uh, uh, because none is free of the costs I have described. If any exception is made, members of Congress who find them an easy way to scratch constituent backs, will be encouraged to launch a new wave of grants on the assurance that theirs will be exempt from all the problems that have plagued the existing ones, and it would take another generation of fact-finding to prove them wrong. Because federal transfers now constitute about 30% of state uh, revenues, however, Congress cannot cut off the flow uh, uh, overnight. Therefore, it should terminate the programs by converting all the grants the states and localities are currently relying on into single, no-strings-attached block grants, one for each state, that would be phased out of a period of a half-dozen years. That would allow Congress and the states the time to adjust their respective tax codes to accommodate the successive reductions in the federal transfers. That, in sum, is my book's modest proposal, a reform that at one strike, at one stroke, would reduce federal expenditures by one-sixth rid Congress of a major uh, distraction from its essential national responsibilities and restore the conditions for a healthy federalism. I realize, of course, that it is one thing to propose a major reform and quite another to secure its adoption. Mine will be especially difficult (coughs) excuse me, it will be especially difficult in this case because so few people are yet aware that a problem exists that, it is in, that is in urgent need of reforming. I hope, however, that my book will succeed in triggering a public examination of the program's costs and inst- institutional consequences that in due course can bring about fundamental change. As it happens, This is a particularly propitious time to seek a reform of the kind I propose. Recent headlines concerning incompetence and worse at the IRS, Veterans Administration, and other federal agencies have undermined the myth that Washington necessarily knows best, and confidence in the federal government has never been so low. Uh, It also appears that Americans still understand the virtue of the Constitution's allocation of governmental responsibilities. According to a survey of 2013 polling data, today's Americans believe that state and local governments are best able to handle the following responsibilities by the indicated percentages. Housing by 82% of those polled. Transportation, 78%, education, 75%, and welfare, 69%. Those are precisely the kinds of responsibility that the Constitution has preserved for the states, the kinds that federal, education, uh, federal agencies have taken over. It will take time, I know, for the merits of my proposal to sink in, but the facts are there. If enough Americans learn of the grants program's true costs, they will know they have everything to gain from their termination both as citizens and taxpayers. And as we have learned over and over again in the past, an aroused electorate can achieve political miracles. Nor should we give up on Congress. Former U.S. Senator James L. Buckley is author of Saving Congress from Itself. You can watch the full event at Cato.org.